It's Friday, October 8th, and you've got Oz in your ears. It's time to put the best of the best to the test, so why rest? Let's get to it. Polling on Obamacare has been pretty consistent. 40% like it, 40% don't like it, and the other 20% could care less. That over half the public is unimpressed with this major reform of our health care system puzzles me. But what I find most astonishing is the insane lengths to which the opposition has gone to demonize it. How about those death panels we would face, deciding if there's enough wage earner left in us to pay for the heart transplant? Totally bogus. But that doesn't stop Sister Sarah and her foxy friends from spreading the lie and scaring half of our rest home residents to death. So, in the pursuit of truth and sanity, let's take a look at the key Obamacare reforms that went into effect last week. First, providers won't be able to cancel a policy because of a typo on the application. The insurance companies will have to find other work for that legion of nitpickers who cast honest clients into purgatory for want of spell check. Second, insurers can't deny coverage to kids because of pre-existing conditions like hay fever, asthma, or sports injuries. I get it. Why should we make the kids suffer just because there's too much ragweed, polluted air, and AYSO leagues? Third, no more limits on the amount of coverage. So if I develop a chronic condition, I don't have to lose my savings, my self-esteem, and move back in with my parents in Shaker Heights. Fourth, the provider will pay for mammograms and standard immunizations. Pretty radical, huh? Denying Americans their inalienable right to breast cancer, diphtheria, polio, mumps, and measles. Fifth, in case of a medical crisis, I can use the nearest emergency room without penalty. That's a relief. The last time I had a car accident, I had to drive my broken body in my broken car across town to my local ER to cover the charges. There they are the core of the new regulations that healthcare providers must abide by. Not exactly the Maoist, Stalinist, Communist, Socialist, totalitarian takeover that the corporate shills, co-opted congressmen, and oversteep teabaggers are trumpeting. Wait a minute. Are the insurance barons threatened by the prospect of healthy Americans? Do they fear that if, if they can no longer play doctor with our bodies, that we'll recover and take back the treasures they stole from our sick beds? Does that vision make them ill? Not to worry. Their local Obamacare physician is in, and we'll see them now. Well, you remember, David, that just recently we did a big, long article on the Medal of Honor game, video game, that, that is now taking place in Afghanistan and soon Pakistan, and very realistic. By the way, the person that put this abomination together is Steven Spielberg who probably is like myself in the fact that he's a wussy intellectual. No, I was in the Army. He wasn't. So he's flexing his virtual muscle here. Uh, Medal of Honor. Thank you, Stephen. Not. Okay. Video game publisher Electronic Arts, they're the, they're the people that put this on, is pulling a controversial feature that would have let players join the Taliban from Medal of Honor, one of the most anticipated releases of the year. Uh -huh. Okay. 
As originally planned, players in virtual battle online could team up in squads one side of insurgents designated as the Taliban with U.S. troops as their target. After rising criticism, including a sales ban in Army and Air Force exchange outlets, EA decided to change the game. Changing the game ain't easy, by the way. They must, they, uh, I got to tell you, our consultant, John Cumming, um, the Oz team and consultant was a person who used to take groups of these gamers because he was a head gamer and, and, and put them in weird, uh, uh, undisclosed locations and force them to work all day and all night to make these kind of changes. It's a real code shop, code sweat shop. So they're sweating it out. Right. So, so wait, just let, let's take this back. You mean we're going to play cowboys and Indians, but you can't play the Indians? You, no, you no? can't. No. Here's, okay. what, here's what you're going to be able to do. No, you're <laughs> quite right. right. But right. the Taliban, worse than Indian. Worse right. than Indian. Worse than Indian. No, Go worse. Oh, because we, couldn't, we can't kill all of them that easily. Not only one by one. Go ahead. To be sensitive to families and friends of fallen soldiers, the game will be changed so that the opposing force or op for see they have their own names inside video not taliban will be in the multiplayer mode so you can go you can become a member of the op for but not the taliban but you watch the taliban's going to hear about this and they're going to start infiltrating the op for all right all right so this uh, this said producer Greg Goodrich. Medal of Honor is a big thank you letter to the troops. And if this one word costs some troops to be not able to receive that, let's change it and hopefully people will get that. It's a big thank you letter to the troops? Yeah. I wonder what letter that uh, is. Does anybody on our side not get killed? In which case, that would be nice. Otherwise, it seems to be a brutal, horrific, miserable attempt to abuse our children with death. You know, you're right. From the Associated Press, the income gap between the richest and poorest Americans grew last year to its widest amount on record as young adults and children in particular struggled to stay afloat in the recession. This isn't what the Tea Party's talking about. They're talking about some constitution that was taken away from them. What we're really talking about is that income disparity is growing, the poor are getting poorer, and a few of the rich are getting richer, and something has got to be done about it. The top earning 20% of Americans, those making more than 100000 each year, receive 49.4% of all the income generated in the U.S., compared with the 3.4% earned by those below the poverty line, according to newly released census figures. That ratio of 14.5 to 1 was an increase from 13.6 to 1 in 2008 and nearly double a low of 7.69 in 1968. In 1968, not so long. Long ago, right, when the hippie revolution was beginning and the war in Vietnam was beginning to smell bad, the, the divide between the rich and the poor was kind of an 8 to 1. And it's now, what, almost a 15 to 1? Hey, something's got to be done, man. Something's, something's got to get redistributed. Somebody's got to go in and tell those Koch brothers to cough it up or cotch it up. A different measure, the International GINI Index found U.S. income inequality at its highest level since the Census Bureau began tracking household income in 1967. The U.S. also has the greatest disparity among Western industrialized nations. Really? And the worst health care? 
At the top, the wealthiest 5% of Americans who earn more than $180,000 a year added slightly to their annual incomes last year. Families of the, of the 50, uh, the 50,000 medium level slipped lower. Income inequality is rising, and if we took into account tax data, it would be even more, said Timothy Smeeting, a University of Wisconsin-Madison professor who specializes in poverty. More than other countries, we have a very unequal income distribution where compensation goes to the top in a winner-take-all economy. Lower-skilled adults aged 18 to 34 had the largest jumps in poverty last year as employers kept or hired older workers for the dwindling jobs available. They they aren't educated, they aren't prepared, they've been abused, they may be addicted, and there's no work. Something bad is happening, brother. Something real bad. The declining economic fortunes have caused many unemployed young Americans to double up in housing with parents, friends, and loved ones with potential problems for the labor market if they don't get needed training for the future jobs, said Smeeting. The findings are part of a broad array of U.S. census data being released this month that highlight the far-reaching impact of the recent economic meltdown. The effects have ranged from near-historic declines in U.S. mobility and birth rates to delayed marriage and the first drop in the number of illegal immigrants in two decades. It's so bad here, nobody wants to come across the border. I think I'll stay right where I am. All right, Peter, I... um you know, I read these stories in the New York Times and uh, you underline paragraphs and things that people said that you want to remember and mm-hmm. suddenly they're all they all just become poems to me. So uh, this is a poem uh, based on Gates and I don't mean Bill Gates, I mean Secretary of the Army Gates. Yeah. Who revealed several interesting things. And here's the poetic version of that. See what you think when I finish. Okay. Okay. A cadre of military leaders cut off politically, culturally, and geographically from the population they're sworn to protect. Recruits come increasingly from the South, the Mountain West, and small towns. Army posts moved to just five states, Georgia, Kentucky, North Carolina, Texas, Washington, Our young military leaders have, to one degree or another, found themselves dealing with development, governance, agriculture, health, diplomacy. Their peers are reading spreadsheets and making photocopies. Well, I, I love that. That is the that is the new army. The crazy thing is, is that they're they're not at all prepared to do any of that. I mean, you know, these are people from small towns who, who only have one of five states to choose where to train, and then they have to go off and be State Department and Army and International Monetary Fund and psychiatrist. Development, governance, agriculture, health, and diplomacy. Oh my God! I mean, what a degree to take from the university when of we, nowhere. <laughs> When we bring our officers home, maybe they can do something useful here because gosh knows we could use some governance and agriculture and health and And all those things. And a little diplomacy. From the New York Times, more bad, bad news out of Afghanistan. Am I surprised? The only good news we could get out of Afghanistan is no news because we're not there. Members of an American army unit 
consumed with drug use, randomly chose Afghan civilians to kill and then failed to report the abuses out of fear they would suffer retaliation from their commander, according to testimony in military court this week. The testimony in a hearing to determine whether one of those soldiers, Specialist Jeremy N. Morlock, would face a court-martial and a possible death sentence came the same day that a videotape in the case was leaked showing Specialist Morlock talking to investigators about the killings in gruesome detail with no apparent emotion. Just the right kind of person to send over there in a U.S. Army outfit. Top Army officials worry that the case against Specialist Morlock and four other soldiers accused in the killings of three Afghan civilians will undermine efforts to build relationships with Afghans in the war against the Taliban. You think so? Huh? You think the Afghans may take these random murders personally? The soldiers are accused of possessing dismembered body parts, including fingers and a skull, and collecting photographs of dead Afghans. Some images show soldiers posing with the dead. As many as 70 images are believed to be in evidence. Uh, Well, it was also this way when I trained briefly with the Special Forces at Fort Sam Houston in Texas. I was in a medical unit. I was a six-month wonder, but the Special Forces guys all also trained in medics. So I shared a barracks with a whole bunch of kids going over. This is 64. And they just couldn't wait to get over to Vietnam and start making them necklaces out of ears. Some of the soldiers have said in court documents that they were forced to participate in the killings by a supervisor, Sergeant Calvin Gibbs, who was also accused in the killings. All five defendants have said that they are not guilty. In one incident, Specialist Morlock recounted in the video, he described Sergeant Gibbs identifying for no apparent reason an Afghan civilian in a village, then directing Morlock and another soldier to fire on the man after Sergeant Gibbs lobbed a grenade in his direction. He kind of placed me and Winfield over here so we had a clean line of sight for this guy. And, you know, he pulled out one of the grenades, an American grenade, popped it, throws a grenade, and tells me and Winfield, all right, wax this guy, kill this guy, kill this guy, Sergeant Morlock said in the video. Referring to the Afghan, the investigator asked, did you see him present any weapons? Was he aggressive toward you at all? Sergeant Morlock replied, no. No, nothing at all. No, he wasn't a threat. So you think maybe the Afghans may look askance at this kind of activity? I wonder. No, I don't. We're killing ourselves over there while we're killing everybody else. Pull in your reel, Mr. Fielding. You're barking up the wrong fish. For 13 years, the Reverend Joseph Palacios lived, prayed, and studied with the Jesuits. But he left the Roman Catholic order in 2005 because he would not profess a vow of obedience to the Pope. I felt like I could still be a Catholic priest, Policio said, but I could not deal with that kind of scrutiny and command from the top. Now the 59-year-old priest and adjunct professor at Georgetown University, the nation's oldest Catholic university, is again at odds with the church's hierarchy, this time on one of its signature issues, the definition of marriage. In recent years, Catholic bishops have used their moral influence and deep pockets to push for bans on same-sex unions in states from California to Maine. But... A new core of increasingly vocal Catholics is urging a mutiny against the hierarchy, in the words of one activist, particularly on gay marriage and related matters. For example, on September 14, Policios and other advocates launched Catholics for Equality, a group that aims to persuade believers in the movable middle to defy the bishops and support civil rights for gays, lesbians, bisexual, and transgender people. 
Similarly, four Catholic groups with a combined 112 years of activism on gay issues announced the formation of Equally Blessed, a coalition dedicated to providing a voice for faithful, pro-equality Catholics. Also this week, a mailing of 400,000 DVDs sent to every registered Catholic family in Minnesota explaining the church's position on marriage sparked a Return the DVD campaign. A Catholic artist pledged to make a sculpture with discarded discs. The artist has been suspended from her artist-in-residence job at the Basilica of St. Mary in Minneapolis. Policios, who teaches sociology at Georgetown, says surveys show Catholics are more accepting of LGBT people than any other Christian group. He cited a May 2010 Gallup poll in which 62% of Catholics said gay and lesbian relationships are morally acceptable, a 16% increase from just four years ago. That's quite a bump. Catholic gay rights supporters have been emboldened by the example of nuns who bucked the bishops by supporting the health care overhaul Congress passed last March, said Francis Bernardo, executive director of New Ways Ministry, one of the groups involved in Equally Blessed. I had no idea that the Catholic Church was using their money to counter the health care reform. That's, they, should, they should lose their tax-free status for that. People are using that as a touchstone, he said. They see that the nuns were courageous, and they feel like they can be courageous too. And courageous is contagious. Yeah, you rock on there. You get them equally blessed, because they certainly are. History itself in the patterns in the stone we close our eyes and fumbling we listen
These are confusing times, no doubt. In a little over a year, we have seen our economy tank, our empire implode, and our culture unravel. Whether we've entered a bona fide Big D depression or are just double dipping doesn't change the fact that half the states are bankrupt, real unemployment is nearly double what the government will admit, and the specter of homelessness stalks millions of Americans who, until recently, were sleepwalking through the American dream. We can't pump up the war machine because we lost the handle chasing vandals in and out of the Middle East, and the loyal opposition in Congress is loyal only to their simple-minded scheme of bringing down the government so they can root around for goodies in the ashes. These are the times that try men's souls, and we have been tried and found wanting on at least one count of spineless stupidity. Both ends of the political spectrum have abjured any responsibility for the mess we're in and shifted the explanation to a series of self-serving conspiracy theories, all starring Barack Hussein Obama. The Tea Party version has been grabbing column inches for months. Obama is a dedicated, anti-colonial, Kenyan anchor baby sent here to take away our guns, our hummers, and our right to die from lack of proper health care. The rants from the disgruntled left have the look of legitimate research, but in the end are just as far-fetched. My favorite is the screed that ties Obama's father and the rest of his family to a variety of CIA plots against good guy African leaders, and then reveals the military-industrial cabal behind Barack's rise to the presidency. All that's missing are the Illuminati, the Elders of Zion, and the Spear of Longinus. Obama's not the Manchurian candidate. He's a remarkable person trying to clean up a White House befouled with eight years of sedition and greed. He got the Nobel Prize just for being elected. That's a measure of the doo-doo left behind by W and the horse he rode out on. Take another look at TARP. It worked. Study the stimulus bill. It's a transforming vision. And come November 2nd, get off your disgruntled ass and do the right thing. I didn't vote for Obama, um, basically because I couldn't figure out what his agenda was. He wanted to scream, change, 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 change what? From Time Magazine. It's no secret that for all its full-throated protests, the Pakistani government tolerates CIA drone attacks against Afghan insurgents and al-Qaeda targets based on its side of the border. But NATO helicopter attacks are another matter, especially when Pakistani troops die, as was the case last week when a coalition strike mistakenly killed three Pakistani soldiers. Pakistan's response? The summary closure of a vital supply line for U.S. and NATO forces. It could scarcely come at a worse time in the nine-year war. Nine years. With more troops on the ground than ever before, and clearing operations at full tilt across much of the southern battle zone, the move threatens to complicate the inflow of critical resources needed to keep the military machine humming, and convoys, <laughs> idle by the bottlenecks, have become highly vulnerable to Taliban attack. It's also a sharp reminder of a fickle partnership whose strategic interests clash in the Afghan theater. Yeah, Pakistan's not worried about Afghanistan. They're not even that worried about Al-Qaeda. They're worried about India, and we don't really get that. 
Washington and Islamabad are nominally united in their fight against Islamic militants in Pakistan and Afghanistan. After much foot-dragging, Pakistan in the past year has waged an aggressive campaign against a homegrown insurgency that has spilled from its tribal areas into the big cities, where suicide bombings and targeted killings have surged. Hey, there are Taliban, or insurgents, or militants, I don't know what you want to call them, the, uh, you know... Graduates of the local madras in control of territory within 60 kilometers of Islamabad. It's a serious situation. Nevertheless, critics say the Pakistani army has been reluctant to move against militant groups like the Afghan Taliban and the allied Haqqani network, which have bases in Pakistan, but are focused on Afghanistan because they want to preserve the Afghan groups as proxies once the U.S. withdraws from that country. And withdraw, indeed, we will. As popular support in the U.S. for the fighting dwindles, the Obama administration has been hard-pressed to show compelling results ahead of the year-end White House war review. In the face of that, the Pentagon has chosen to ramp up drone attacks in Pakistan. Over the past five weeks, more than 20 have taken place. Now let's get this strategy. We can't win it with boots on the ground. We're losing it with boots on the ground, so we're going to win it with drones in the air? I don't think so. In recent days, this push escalated with a series of helicopter strikes on militant hideouts, and then a fatal mistake. NATO claims the chopper that killed the Pakistani soldiers received ground fire upon entering Pakistani airspace and shot back in defense, while Islamabad insists that the aircraft shouldn't have been there in the first place. An apology has been made and an investigation launched. The question now is, what's next? I'll tell you what's next. More trouble. U.S. officials are hustling behind the scenes to avoid a meltdown with Pakistan that could seriously hamstring the counterinsurgency effort. Some 80% of the NATO's non-lethal supplies are transported over Pakistan territory, entering Afghanistan through two border posts. The impasse has stranded hundreds of trucks bearing critical fuel, military vehicles, and food for more than the 150,000 international forces, leaving the vehicles vulnerable to sabotage. Got 150,000 people there being serviced on the ground through two ports, both of which have been stopped because we helicoptered three Pakistani soldiers when we shouldn't have been there in the first place. And I love the fact we call it NATO helicopters. Uh-huh. A day after the government's decision, dozens of fuel tankers were set ablaze by unidentified militants. On Monday of this week, another score of NATO tankers were set ablaze by Molotov cocktails near Islamabad, apparently by Taliban forces. And if not by Taliban, by somebody else. The continued onslaught of American drone attacks could pose a problem, you think? On Saturday, two more strikes reportedly killed eight militants in separate sites in North Waziristan, the insurgent-laden tribal region the Pakistani military has opt to leave alone. Sounds kind of like a, a tourist brochure. Visit Waziristan. It's insurgent-laden. I mean, how do you tell from the drone strike if that buzzard is an insurgent or just somebody living there poverty-stricken life. While Pakistan has provided intelligence uh -huh, in support of drone strikes, the popular backlash has been consistently fierce as the attacks are seen as an affront to national pride, deepening already strong anti-American currents across the country. We don't belong in Pakistan. We won't be able to stay there. It's much, much different than the Afghanistan situation where there is no real government. There's Kabul being held by, you know, Karzai, and then there's Kandahar being held by the Taliban, and there's somebody else is up in the north. Pakistan has a central government. 
in Islamabad, basically run by the army and the intelligence service. And they're not about to give over to the United States. And they have the bomb. Well, Peter, here's another one of these uh, short poems that comes from reading the New York Times but not wanting to read every word in it. Yeah. Well, that's because you've got a brain that makes that happen. Other people would see other combinations or none whatsoever. Might just see fish wrap, but you see poetry. Well, here, uh, this one is, is, I guess, called Talk About Dr. Memory. The Great Worm Stuxnet Attacks Siemens Cymatic S7. With the word Myrtus, or red herring. No, really, it's related botanically to Guava, or maybe Esther, whose name was Hadassah. Learned cross-cultural wordplay, says Scholar. We have studied its protocols and functionality. We sliced the code to its deepest level, says Computer Warrior. Centrifuges slow. Grids blink out, compost for Stuxnet, their memories failing. Yeah, you know, they don't know who did it either. That's wonderful. Well, that, that, that is. That, that, that makes me kind of almost like Stuxnet. Stuxnet. Yeah, they, they, threw, that, they threw that into the um, nuke factory there in, in Iran. And they did it with a flash drive, a little thumb drive probably, they think. They're not sure. And immediately they said, oh, it's got to be the Americans. And they said, no, no, it could be the Israelis. And they said, no, well, it could be the Russians or the Brits. And then somebody said, no, it could be off campus. It could be a non-state job. And they said, well, it only would take, I think one of the semantics, one of the people that knows all about this said, it would take something like half a dozen people six months to do it. But that's not, that's not a lot of people working for six months. That's you know? not a lot of months for a lot of people well, either. It, if you can destroy the, the Siemens S7, which runs everything. everything yeah, probably about. this. I, oh, oh, out the <clears throat> this is part of my harp on tarp and my paean to the stimulus. This from Time Magazine. People of good faith can disagree over whether President Obama's $787 billion stimulus package is creating enough jobs, piling on too much debt, or helping the country in the long run. But it's about time to retire one set of critiques of the stimulus, that it would be riddled with fraud, hamstrung by delays, and crippled by cost overruns. So far, while the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act is clearly not a political success, it is just as clearly a managerial success, on schedule, under budget, and according to independent investigators, remarkably free of fraud. I hope you're here in this, America. Last week, the administration met its self-imposed deadline of spending 70% of the Recovery Act, or $551 billion bucks, by the end of the fiscal year. Almost all of the unspent stimulus money is already committed to specific projects, except for a few longer-range initiatives like high-speed rail and electronic health records. And the completed work has cost less than expected, so the savings have financed over 3,000 additional projects, from airport improvements in Atlanta to new child care centers at military bases in Louisiana, North Carolina, Mississippi, and Oklahoma. From a new five-lane road in Jacksonville to a $14.5 million transformation of World War II ammunition factory into an eco-friendly government building in St. Louis. By the way, 
Isn't Senator Coburn from Oklahoma the guy that hates the stimulus? I wonder if he minds if there's some some new child care centers on the military bases in Oklahoma. Probably hates child care, too. Probably hates children. Meanwhile, Earl Devaney, the hard-nosed watchdog leading the Independent Recovery Accountability and Transparency Board. Boy, there's a mouthful. Hi, honey. Back home from another long day at the Independent Recovery Accountability and Transparency Board. Will you just sit down and have one of these gray goose martinis, you stud? Well, he recently testified to Congress that investigators simply haven't seen the kind of fraud that we would have imagined as professional law enforcement. Before the stimulus passed, experts predicted the government would lose 5 to 7% of it to fraud. Today, out of over 190,000 contracts, grants, and loans, less than 0.2% are under investigation. Of course, if Suntan Bamer and his boys took over the House, they'll investigate everything. The board is using newfangled computer algorithms that can track suspicious spending patterns before there's a complaint. The inspectors general of every major agency are bird-dogging the stimulus as well. Devaney likes to say that if you really want to steal, you'd be crazy to steal from the Recovery Act. It's way too transparent. With every dollar traceable at www.recovery.gov, and there are too many eyes on it. In the words of Vice President Joe Biden, I like the words of Vice President Joe Biden, particularly when he's whispering in Obama's ear. And he's the administration's point man on the stimulus. Fraud has been the dog that hasn't barked. At the same time, concerns that excessive vigilance against fraud would slow the pace of spending didn't seem to have panned out either. There were a lot of dire predictions, but we found ways to make them not come true, says Ed Deceive, who oversees the stimulus out of Biden's office. It wasn't fate or kismet. It was the actions of lots and lots of people. I don't think you'll see many uses of the word kismet coming out of any press reports from any of them Republicans. It's just too fancy. It was the hard-driving, motormouth vice president who set the tone, promising state and local officials that all their stimulus-related questions would be answered within 24 hours, harassing cabinet secretaries to get their money out the door, pestering his staff to make sure nothing fishy slipped through the cracks, appearing at 56 Recovery Act events around the country. That's great. Bamer's down having a few drinks in Georgetown, and Motormouth, the vice president, is out there appearing at 56 Recovery Act events. Biden talked incessantly about government becoming more responsive, more accountable, more effective. He personally blocked 260 projects that flunked his smell test, including a $120,000 Army Corps of Engineer plan to print brochures about a lake cleanup. We said, hey man, no brochures, put it on a website, Biden recalled in an interview this summer. Stupid thing, but it saved the dollar amount. Another example of Biden's responsiveness. Last June, Republican Senator Pat Roberts of Kansas, no great friend of the Democrats, complained that stimulus money was about to fund a resurfacing of Highway 96 in Cherokee County just in time for more stimulus money to fund a nearby Superfund cleanup requiring heavy trucks that would rip up the road again. The next day, Biden called the Department of Transportation. I said, hey man, don't pave the road before the project is finished with the heavy trucks. Flip it. Roberts promptly thanked him on the Senate floor. Quote, the White House moved in an expeditious fashion, and quite frankly, I didn't expect they could move that fast. With unemployment still so high, the administration's successful oversight of the stimulus does not have an otherwise did-you-enjoy-the-play-Mrs. Lincoln feel. The recovery remains tepid. So, 
the Recovery Act remains unpopular, like TARP, which worked like gangbusters. It's unpopular because people want to hate it. They want to hate it because it's big and we're spending a lot of money and they think somehow we, as if I'm part of the government, are taking it out of their pockets. The White House says there would be three million more unemployed Americans without it, and many independent economists agree. But the failed stimulus has become a Republican symbol of everything wrong with Obama's Washington. Even most Democrats, including the president himself, won't utter the word stimulus in public anymore. But so far, no indictments, no major scandals, no missed deadlines, no busted budgets. Hey, man, that's more than good enough for government work. Superpower crossfire caught between fools and liars, pit nation against nation for world domination. From the Huff, the Environmental Protection Agency wants to regulate a toxic chemical used in rocket fuel that has contaminated drinking water supplies, reversing a decision made under the Bush administration. I'm particularly aware of this because when I worked in a councilman's office in L.A. about four years ago, we dealt with this very problem with rocketine out in Burbank. I'll tell you more about that later. The agency has proposed that the chemical, perchlorate, be regulated under the Safe Drinking Act. Perchlorate has been found in drinking water in at least 35 states at levels high enough to interfere with thyroid function and pose developmental problems in humans, particularly for babies and fetuses. The Defense Department used perchlorate for decades in testing rockets and missiles and found perchlorate contamination stems from defense and aerospace activities. In 2008, under President George W. Bush, the EPA decided against regulating the chemicals, saying that setting a federal standard would do little to reduce risks to public health. This is real W thinking. That decision angered environmentalists and Democratic lawmakers. The Pentagon and EPA have tussled over the issue for years, with the Pentagon potentially facing liability if the standard were to force water agencies around the country to undertake costly cleanup efforts. Some states, like California and Massachusetts, have set their own standards. I was working for a councilman named Joel Wax in L.A., very interesting, very progressive man who decided to bring forward the first legislation, at least in California that I know of, certainly in Southern California, to regulate perchlorate because there was a lot of it that was contaminating the, the wells around all the defense factories in L.A., particularly the Rocketdyne plant near Burbank. So um, of all people, we had Erin Brockovich come to our uh, <laughs> press conference. She was something else. And uh, we made quite a stir and actually got the legislation passed, and I think it's what moved things along in California. It's deadly stuff, perchlorate. It has to be regulated. I don't care what George W. Bush thinks. Of course, I really don't think what George W. Bush thinks. This has got to be done. There's a ton of environmental regulations that have to go in to clean up our groundwater. We've got to be thinking along these issues. We've got to go green. We can't allow this country to slip into some sort of... Um, Tea Party miasma, where nobody cares about what's in the drinking water, because they're, they're dazed to begin with, dazed and confused. They don't know one well from another. Bob, I'm really glad you could join me here in the Wiggle It's It's wonderful to be here, and you know I love this place because the ice in my drink never melts. Isn't that something? <laughs> I don't know it's how they ice do it. Nine. It's oh. Ice Nine, they, yeah. because it's Washington D.C. and this is, you know, this is a special place. So will, we, yeah. We've just been on a special meeting with the president, you know, when and he decided to, to send thirty thousand troops to. It 
some stand. I, I don't I, know. One of those painful stands they got there, you know? This I, one was, I don't remember. I said, Mr. President, meet us in a wiggle room. And he said, I don't, I don't need that much wiggle room. I said, I said, well, we're enablers, Mr. President. That's right. We, we can help you out. You know, I mean, it's not, you know, we one of us can stand on one side the other, enabler on the other. We can enable you uh, right uh, over the brink if we want to, you know. And we're a way out. Uh, one of the things you kept saying, he was crying. I had to see a president cry. Well, I was, was Colonel Wibble in there. Oh, yeah. You know, and, 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 and Petraeus, General Petraeus. No, well, he's General Petraeus. Uh, specifically, he's an asshole. Oh, yeah, right. right. So but generally, he's just, generally just, just, just Petraeus. Petraeus. Well, I, I, I said to the president, I said, if you want a way out, we'll give you a way out. You did. And yeah, it, I did. What, did. what did he say? He I don't says, remember. There's no way out. He says, no there's way no out. winning. There's no losing. Oh, there's just gosh. there's just uh, uh, meeting expectations. Meeting, meeting, meeting expectations. Can I have some of that do, ice now? Well, you take some of this ice because it's it's uh, crowding my drink and I, what I really wanted. We should talk a little bit about this crisis in, in global wobble, yeah. Bill, because I'm worried it's going to knock me off the table. <laughs> this music makes me sick.
another caller on the Skype line. Peter, this is Pastor Go to Hell. Well, hello, Pastor. I haven't heard from you for a while. Maybe not, but that doesn't mean I haven't been counting. Well, counting what? You think I, I, I care that you used 56,975,457 letters on yesterday's show, huh? You think I care? I, I did? Yes, you did. You question my statistics? Well, I really have no idea. I don't know, but I do. You think I don't know that 56,975,457 is the product of three consecutive primes? It is? Uh-huh. And I guess you don't know that when I input those primes into my secret Bible decoder ring, it spells Satan rocks. It does? <laughs> of course, you have to pretend not to know about all the secret messages you transmitting. I, I am? Come on, come on. You're working for the man, same as me. Because <laughs> you're working for the other man. I suppose from your perspective, so am I. Well, th thanks for your call, Pastor. Don't you patronize me, Pete. I got the numbers and numbers never lie. I might, but the numbers never do. <laughs> I've been swimming against the current of public opinion in the big river of denial too long. I have to climb out over its failed banks and towel off the illusion that the voting public will wake up from their long midterm nap and keep the relatively sane Democratic Party in control of Congress. Hope may spring eternal, but those springs have been thoroughly evaporated by the extraordinary heat coming from the right. The combination of super PACs, run by the likes of Karl Rove, suitcases of cash from billionaire bandits who remain in the shadows thanks to the bad boys on the Supreme Court, and the drumbeat of fear and falsehood emanating from the lipstick liars and the amoral altar boys on Fox is just too much for our fragile democracy to withstand. It's happened before. During the 30s, fascist clerics, hooded racists, armed vigilantes, and kingfish dictators strove for the hearts and minds of America, mired in a decade-long depression. Only World War II and the full employment that came in its wake saved them from that dark crowd. No wartime prosperity can save us now. It is, in fact, our endless war against the terrorists, insurgents, militants, and locals who get in the way that has brought us to the brink of financial and moral bankruptcy. Into this spiritual vacuum have stepped the know-nothings, naysayers, homophobes, xenophobes, ayatollahs, misogynists, and seditionists, sidelined until now by a bubble economy and a corrupt empire. I fear that nasty gang is going to have their way for a while, and perhaps a dose of their second-rate minds and third-rate solutions will sober us up. Perhaps those springs of hope will flow again, even if it takes the hard rain a-coming to fill them. Hello, Ozineers. That's what I call the 
couple grand of you who every day download this show and put it in your ears. I have a favor, okay? I'm looking for some of you to help us promote Radio Free Oz on Twitter. This is one of the ways we're going to market this show and monetize it. We have just set up our new Twitter account. We'd love to connect with you. All you need to do is go to twitter.com slash oznetwork and click the follow button. See ya. Uh, This comes from one of my favorite sources, The Daily Beast. The Nobel Prize announcement may be still about a week off, but Harvard's Science Humor magazine, the Annals of Improbable Research, uh, has something to whet your appetite. Each year, it awards the Ig Nobel Prizes (laughs) for serious scientific research on topics that seem anything but serious. And this year, the Ig Nobel Prize for Medicine went to a group of Dutch scientists who found that the positive emotional stress of being on a roller coaster diminishes shortness of breath among asthma sufferers. Now, that is pretty far out because how am I going to deal with my asthma? Well, how about staying on a roller coaster all your life? Right? Yeah, sure. There's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you'll get breastfeeding time, too. Yeah, and it's good for elect- uh, erectile troubles. Yeah. Well, uh, and electrile troubles. Which is nice. Too. This is a good okay. one. Other, Go other recipients included a group of American researchers mm-hmm. who discovered that bearded scientists pose a health risk to their families because bacteria remained in their facial hair even after washing. So your bearded scientist husband, right, with his pipe and all that stuff is basically typhoid manny well wouldn't that be anybody's bearded husband doesn't say does it no Not it doesn't specific. but i mean if it's a bearded scientist who's been sucking on his pipettes you know yeah. why that's pretty disgusting well but if your bearded husband let's say it's a husband here you could be okay. your bearded wife but they're more rare is an accountant what does he bring home but the boredom of the office in his beard and that that could be a problem oh man that's like people who are disgruntled and they cook okay here's one though go ahead and my favorite, though. All right. Italian, the Italian physicist won the management prize after mathematically proving that random promotions within a company actually made it run more efficiently. <laughs> now, that deserves a Nobel Prize. No kidding. That would set our government forward. I, I, back in 1976, one of George Papoon's platforms was to randomly reassign useless government employees randomly to other useless jobs. Just to shake things up, you well, know? Well, this is starting a whole new super-efficient random world. They found that throwing darts at the Wall Street Journal's Stock page did just as well as braining it out. And now random promotions will do as well as butt sucking and, you know, and evaluations. I love it. Straight out of Talking Points memo. A significant number of FBI employees cheated on an exam intended to assess their skills on criminal investigations, national security investigations, and foreign intelligence collection, according to a recent Justice Department Inspector General report. The FBI is full of cheaters. When taking the computerized 51-question Domestic Investigations and Operations Guide, DIOG, how'd you do on the DIOG, dog? Some consulted with others while taking the exam. Others used or distributed answer sheets or study guides that provided answers to the test. And some employees exploited a programming flaw to reveal the answers to the exam on their computers. Supervisors, including two assistant special agents in charge and a legal advisor, were involved in such cheating, and almost all of those who cheated falsely certified on the final question of the exam that they had not consulted with others, according to the OIG report. Ooh. 
In addition, some instructors taught to the test during training sessions and gave clues about uh, what would be on the test. Instructors stomped a foot several times loudly when they were covering a question that would be on the exam. And other instructors would mark their PowerPoint slides with attention-getting signals, such as a cartoon character, if the information on that particular slide would be on the exam. If you see Porky Pig, it's on the exam. If you see Donald Duck, it's on the exam. This is because the people that are trying to be FBI agents are part of the great uneducated mass. They don't know diddly squat and they've got to cheat to get by. This is not good news. The FBI found that over 200 employees had completed the exam, expected to take two hours in 20 minutes or less. So I wonder, did they all take a speed reading course? Are they all just such geniuses? They don't have to think twice? Or is the FBI really the FIB? Well, Dave, uh, you've got us into a new guy now. You got us into a new, probably Tang period, at least early Tang period poet. And what's cool about, about Da Cheng is that he likes to drink wine and he likes to talk about he it. He sure does. And you know, he, his lifetime, we're talking about 400 here, 400 AD. He was writing wow. these lovely poems. Wow. Yeah. Oh, man. Sev, you know, 1,700 years ago and the man knew how to do his stuff. He sure did. Here's one. A green pine grows in eastern garden. Dense underbrush obscures its beauty. When a nipping frost ruins all other plants, its lofty branches emerge majestically. Unnoticed among trees, standing alone, it becomes a wonder. I take a pot of wine to hang on the wintry bough, then look afar over and over again. Life alternates between dreams and illusions. Why should... I tie myself to this worldly bondage. Good question to which I have no real answer, <laughs> but at least we're tied. We're tied to Radio Free Oz, and uh, it's it's a it's a mild kind of bondage. Mild kind of bondage. Yeah, kind of a friendly. Yeah. I'm getting excited. Ooh. The bondage of Radio right. Free Oz. Don't forget to go up to RadioFreeOz.com. Dig Bergman's blog, Osmond's blog. Go up to the Ozaneers page and find out what you can get if you subscribe and become an insider. See you tomorrow.